podcast starts. Hello everyone and welcome back to And Now The Podcast Starts, a show which talks about horror, cinema and anything related that takes the interest of my wonderful co-hosts or myself. I'm T.D. Velasquez, but you can call me Dan in Greater Manchester, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by... Kirsty Warrow in Shropshire. Hello Kirsty. how's it going? It's good, how are you? Uh, yeah, I, I'm, you know... Relatively well in in the apocalyptic world. Um, uh, That's good you know, to hear. I'm really thank you very much. Um, I'm again just reminded of how lucky we are because you know we have, I guess, the equivalent of first world problems around Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's like the things that irritate me are having to disinfect the uh, delivery that was brought this morning by the biscuit man. <laughs> You have a biscuit um, delivery. Wonderful. Yeah, uh, uh, we do. He, they've just restarted. He rang me up yesterday. They'd been furloughed for a, a few weeks, but he said, we'll come round and leave some biscuits for you. Um, so Coffee, tea and biscuits. Okay, so um, can I? So that's the thing that you would have had anyway before the apocalypse. <laughs> that's true, yes, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, it's called, the company is called Rington's, and I would recommend the service to, to anyone uh, it's it's a little bit more expensive, obviously, than than going to the shops. But it's so nice. It's the definition of a luxury, if you can, to have biscuits and cake brought to your door. Wow, that does sound lovely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so no, it, it's a nice day today. Yeah. Uh, so, how's your week been, Kirsty? It's been pretty good. Um, sun is shining today, so that's nice. Um, and, yeah, I've just been kind of watching stuff, doing work, um, paying attention to what's happening out in the world. Um, there was, a, I came across last night, I think on, um, I think on AV club, I might be wrong. I'm attributing it wrong there. Um, but that, um, Jamie Lee Curtis, um, of course, you know, iconic in her role in, in the Halloween franchise, um, has just signed on with Blumhouse, um, to direct, um, three t- films and or television shows. Um, so she, yeah, so she's kind of moving into uh, being a horror director. So I think that's, you know, something to. Are, are they definitely horror? Um, I, from what I can, from te- from what I can tell, they seem to be. Um, but right. I, okay. I, I'm not sure. There was it was late last night when I came across this. Um, so yeah, so that's one to kind of watch. Well, I mean, you know, Blumhouse is known for its horror output. So. Yes, although they. I think their method or their business model is kind of based around they use a lot of the profits from their kind of mass production of horror output to fund occasional non-horror things like Black Klansman and stuff like that. So, um, and I I kind of would expect that Jamie Lee might have negotiated for a bit of range in the projects that she would want to direct because um, I don't think she's exclusively interested in horror no um i think she once stated that she doesn't watch horror films because they frighten her too much yeah but she obviously she loves uh, the genre and has never shied away from it in, in terms of making those films but i would imagine that kind of as a filmmaker she'd have yeah uh, wider interests as well but yeah i mean actually i've just managed to find that the for the first it, oh okay so it's what it's i've just is from deadline um uh all right uh 
yeah, so the the project is called Mother uh, Mother Nature, and it's it is kind of um, billed as being a horror project, um, which is centered oh. around climate change with um, Curtis directing and co writing. So oh, fantastic! Yeah, so that's that's going to be an interesting one to kind of follow, I think. Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate what you're saying about her, you know, kind of her maybe views as a spectator um watching horror um but you know her whole career has been kind of you know synonymous with the genre hasn't it and even up to yes, kind of screen creams uh, more recently no she's never shied away from it yeah. um she's always gone back to it and i really respect that even though she did kind of she started in the genre and then moved into more mainstream yeah. stuff as famously uh observed in the script of scream uh, she went legit. Yes, yeah. uh, <laughs> she did. As Jamie Kennedy's character said. Yes. But uh, but she always came back, and she um you know she never stopped being kind of enthusiastic and proud of the of the horror films that she'd made. No. Um, and I, I love that she has come back, you know, as an actor, um, in in a very substantial way, making not just one but a trilogy of yeah. new horror films, and that now she's she's kind of leveraged that to um, create directorial opportunities and projects. It sounds like a perfect marriage in a way because I, I get, I've always got the impression that Jamie Lee Curtis is um, a very sensible, business-headed person. Yeah. And I think Blumhouse definitely are. Yeah, she um, seems very astute, so th- doesn't she? So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I, recently, I know it's not horror again, but, you know, horror adjacent, I mm-hmm. uh, really enjoyed her performance. I don't know if you've seen Knives Out. I'm looking film. forward to watching that. Oh. No, I haven't seen it yet. It's it's lovely. <laughs> it's really wonderful. I, I think it's it might enjoyable. be. You, you you might be able to let me know if you think I, I'm wise here. It strikes me as the kind of film I could enjoy with my mum. Yes. Is, am I wrong? Uh, I mean, I mean, no. <laughs> I don't uh, think so because you know it's, not... we, we, it's like a we like old-fashioned murder mysteries, and I know, yes, I know that it's... it subverts that to an yes. extent. Yes, but. Um, I mean, we would have gone to see it at the cinema, but uh, it just we couldn't make it happen for some yeah. reason. No, it's um, I think it's very it's a very enjoyable. I think the, the, probably the word romp has been used um, to describe it, right. um, and lots of fantastic actors, um, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis amongst them, um, yes. doing you know kind of very. Uh, I want to say hammy in a bad way. It's not, but they're you know they're kind of they're all are clearly having a very heightened. good time. Heightened, yes, yes, on and on the comedic side. Um, yeah. So yes, yeah, it's, it's it's an enjoyable film. Yes, it's got a fantastic cast, doesn't it? Yes. Um, you know uh, Christopher Plummer and uh, Chris uh, Evans. Evans, yes. Um, and, yeah, and uh, yeah, no, it's got Michael Daniel yeah. Craig. Michael Shannon is in there. Tony Collette. Oh yeah. Um, um, yeah, and and many many more. Um, yes, it's, it's it's really good. So, but again, not oh. horror. So. <laughs> but connecting to horror, it does have um, the actor from Get Out. I can't remember his name off the top oh, of my um, head. Um, Licky Sanfield is in it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, I've never seen him in anything apart from Get Out, but he was so great in that film. I'd love yeah. to see him in something else. So. Yeah, he's in um, a film called... Um, oh, I've forgotten what it's called now. Um, currently on Sky Cinema. Oh, Sorry to Bother You, um, which is a kind of commentary on, yeah, kind of race relations in America and success and white privilege. Yeah. 
Okay, great. I didn't realise that was him. Oh, fantastic. Yes, I wish I had some uh, kind of horror-related news. The nearest thing to horror I've watched in the last week has uh, been His Dark Materials, which <laughs> might be quite frightening when you're eight. Um, and he's very dark and thought-provoking yes. in a brilliant series, um, you know, but I, I think... To describe it as even horror adjacent might be stretching it a little bit. Yes, yeah, yeah, no. Um, but but I will say that I it, it is something that I'd recommend to anyone interested in dark fantasy. Haven't read the novels it was based on. I have. But I did find it quite absorbing. And that's all on the BBC iPlayer still. Um, luckily, about six months after it was on TV. So thankfully, it was there for me to finally get around to watching. So, yeah, that's a recommendation. Although not horror um okay so uh let's talk about some horror things then yes let's do instead that. of kind of dancing around for. the subject <laughs> so uh yeah so this week's topic uh was going to be my love of peter cushing and christopher lee films yes which uh, is historic because... isn't it john dan <laughs> It's a very As historic a matter of record well, yes <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> yes um uh yes and uh, and in a way to set up the fact that uh, the previous podcast that I recorded with Howard about some of those films uh, will be added to the feed and then we'll start adding new ones. So the thing that originally inspired Howard and I to set on this journey of podcasting about these films was not just the fact that we loved the actors Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee and were very fond of some of the films that they made, but also the fact that they made so many films together. Their careers were linked in a kind of extraordinary way that's hard to mirror elsewhere in the film industry. Over nearly three decades, they made around 24 films together, and there's also a couple of TV series mm -hmm. and a film franchise, namely Star Wars, that they didn't appear in together, but they're both connected to, and we wanted to cover all of those things across our episodes. And we also didn't want to do the films in chronological order, um, but an order which kind of made some kind of holistic emotional sense. So we started off with The Curse of Frankenstein, which is not their first film, but their fourth together. But it is the film which cemented them as linked stars and began their association with the horror genre. So that seemed to be a good place to start. Then we went on and did Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, Scream and Scream Again, the Hound of the Baskervilles, and the Star Wars franchise. And all of those episodes were originally hosted on a website called, called Noisy Bark, and they also went on to YouTube. We're not on Noisy Bark anymore, so I thought it would be a nice idea to add those episodes to our feed for this podcast so that all of our Lee Cushing discussions are together in one place although you can go back to our YouTube channel and listen to the original versions if you'd like. So, the plan is that after today, over the next week, um, the first four podcasts that Howard and I did will be added to this feed. Star Wars won't be. We'll leave that till later because we want to update that one before we add it to our feed. But you'll have the first four podcasts and then... The following week, next week's regular episode, will be a new discussion that Howard and I recorded about a Lee Cushing film, um, Horror Express, from 1972. A really fascinating genre mashup, period 1930s set, horror science fiction hybrid, 
which there's loads to say about. And we're joined by Tim Shaw, who's a huge fan of that movie and an expert, um, and possibly the biggest fan that any movie could ever want to have. So that's a really fun, interesting discussion. But uh, you were not um, massively familiar with these movies, so I gave you a list of uh, films that you could possibly <laughs> you have a look at you did. In, in preparation. Yeah. And um, bless you, you chose a couple of really good um examples in that they they'll they'll give us the opportunity to kind of talk about the range of films in a way because they're from opposite ends of the bulk i would say of of movies that these actors made so the curse of frankenstein is the first one that you chose to watch that's from 1957 as i mentioned how did i also chose it as the first episode of our original podcast so That episode with Howard and I will be added to this podcast feed soon after this episode with you and I goes out. So therefore people can get two different contrasting discussions about this one kind of remarkable movie. And then the other film you chose was The Satanic Rites of Dracula from 1973, which incidentally is the movie from which our wonderful podcast artwork created by Brian Gorman was drawn, which Howard and I have not done yet, so um, we'll skirt over that one a little okay, bit. Okay, a but, little bit, but, yeah. No spoilers. Well, <laughs> no, no, certainly not. Yeah. But um, and uh, I, uh, you know, and I don't want to spoil too much about all the things I think about it because obviously they'll go in the episode. But I'd love to kind of respond to to your thoughts on it. Yeah, I think it might be but, worth me just to just sort of stating my my initial position <laughs> regards sure, to the, these films just thinking about how best to describe i'm not wasn't particularly drawn to these fa- to these particular films uh, as i was growing up sure. and as i was learning about horror i knew about them i knew that they were important um for british horror and i knew that um Cushing and Lee were obviously kind of iconic actors. But the little bits that I had seen in both my kind of leisure watching and my education didn't just, they just didn't grab me. I found them um, at the time a bit kind of campy, not dynamic. um, And (laughs) well, at least this is my perception. Um, Yeah. And and, and, yeah, they just, they sort of lacked what I sort of saw as being or at least kind of experienced where I w- was watching them and felt genuinely kind of scared. Um, partly sure. I think that's to do with budget that, you know, kind of weren't typically huge budget films. So the kind of artifice is kind of um, painted quite large, I think. Um, and yeah, and I think I just found myself, it's not, it wasn't a choice because of course people can be interested in both. I just, I found the, kind of universal horror kind of films of the 30s if you're going to sort of pick two kind of you know cycles of monster movies coming out of different places i just found those films a bit more compelling um and was a bit more drawn towards those than the kind of hammer um kind of yeah house their stuff so that's just kind of going into this discussion and watching these films over the weekend um that was very much my position yeah no that's that's good to know and um i suppose um, I'll I'll outline my initial position as well then for people who've not, you know, heard any of m- uh, myself and Howard's podcasts previously and therefore don't have any idea where I'm coming from on this. Um, I guess I, my position is kind of the reverse of yours in that uh, when I was growing up, 
um, and getting into horror. These were the movies... Well, I wasn't growing up and getting into horror. These were the movies that got me into horror, essentially. Previous to being about 13 or 14, I, I was kind of interested uh, in horror in, in a distant way. I was too frightened to actually watch um, as um, I kind of revealed to you and Stella the other week. I was very... Um, uh, put off by the idea of violence and 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 gore and things, so um, so we and so even though I would be kind of intrigued by the ideas of seeing certain films, I would not be able to really enjoy them. Yeah. Um, it was a, a series of films that my sister Maureen showed me in uh, well when I was that age, uh, and it was a. A weird bunch. It was the mini series of Stephen King's It from 1990, and then it was oh um, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, which <laughs> yeah. obviously for people of a certain age, yeah, as in our age, <laughs> yeah, that's that's very impactful because yes. you know, I'm, I mean, I was I would have been nine when that was made. I didn't see it for a few years because you know it's in those days um, American TV shows tend to take a while to come over to the UK. Yeah. I do remember seeing it on the shelf in the video shop because American product would often, even if it was TV show, would appear as a, a rental video yeah. long before it was actually broadcast on a British TV channel. So Tim Curry in the in the makeup was kind of staring at me from the video shelf. And again, I probably would have been too scared to go near it. It was the fact that my sister kind of sat me down and made me watch it. Right. Um, and and soon after that, she uh, introduced me to a film called Dr. Sarah's House of Horrors from 1965, which is an anthology horror film featuring Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, um, and a film called Asylum, which is another anthology with just Cushing. Obviously not just Cushing, other <laughs> actors as well. Yes. Um, uh, from 1972. And those were the movies. I did find them a little bit frightening, but mainly they kind of introduced me to the idea that horror could be fun. Yeah. And something to be enjoyed, not just kind of endured. And I went from there, really, and, and, it, and it was from there to other kind of Hammer films, just because they featured some of the same actors. I mean, those two films I've just mentioned were not Hammer films. Um, they're, they're by a company called Amicus. But it's obviously the same kind of era. Yeah. Uh, and the next one I saw was The Brides of Dracula, which is Peter Cushing as Van Helsing, but he doesn't have Dracula in it at all, despite the title. Um, I, I, I think if I was seeing that, I'd feel a bit sort of, you know, kind of badly missold <laughs> without Dracula in it. Yes. The fact that people were kind of disappointed with the lack of Dracula in the movie had kind of coloured that and made people think it wasn't very good, but actually it's great. Uh, and it was the perfect kind of next film to seduce me into the whole kind of gothic mode. And... At the same age, I was never really hugely attracted to the Universal ones. Um, uh, I respected them, and I've seen um, a few of them. But I I think uh, they do have... um, They have kind of generally greater kind of artistic worth in in the directing and in the tone and things like that, and and, and to some extent in the photography with the chiaroscuro lighting and the German Expressionist influence. Mm. But I, I think it was um, 
the actors. I just kind of preferred the the kind of actors that the Hammer films had, Cushing and Lee, um, and uh, and also a number of other actors um, who were associated with those kind of movies, like Barbara Shelley. So for um, you, the kind of the, the draw is very much the, those two performers. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think that without them, uh, I I don't think I'd be as interested. Mm. Uh, that's my kind of background with it. Yeah. Um, they were very much for me a kind of gateway drug, um, <laughs> and uh, and created a kind of interest which has has never quite gone away. In the mm-hmm. sense that I I, I kind of value uh, those movies um, or, or the experience of seeing them to the extent that I've still not seen all of them, and it's you know twenty five years later. Um, a lot of the films on the list that Howard and I are going to be talking about I've not seen yet because of that rare quality of those actors. Um, that, that I, you know, I will regret it when I've watched everything they ever did, which, to be fair, is going to be quite difficult because they were very productive. Yeah, um, but is that in part, do you think, just because I find I do this sometimes, is that, that as long as you haven't seen all of it, all of the stuff there is to see, there's always more to see, you know. It's yes, like a kind of absolutely. A, a present that you're leaving for yourself in the future. <laughs> yes, I mean, uh, you'll relate to this, Kirsty. I It took me seven or eight years to watch the last two seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Wow. Um, because I, I just couldn't really face the <laughs> idea of it being okay. over. So it's just like, like, uh. like you know, like, you know, really lovely sweets that you know that as in the, they're gone. And so you have to yes. kind of, rather than just gorging them, which is what I did with Buffy, <laughs> you, you know, just a little bit at a time, which I, I get, I get. But I, I, I find that I rarely have the self-control to do that. I think particularly with television, I think with film, it's a little bit different, but yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think I've overdone it. Um, I think I've done too much of not watching things in my life and saving things for later. Yeah. And therefore, I kind of turn around and I'm suddenly confronted by a mountain of things I've never seen. And in yeah. a way, that's wonderful because it means that I, I can go straight to something that somebody recommended to me. Um, yeah. You know, I don't have to just watch what, what's on TV or what's in the cinema this week and hope that it's good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think just to kind of bring it back to the whole, you know, kind of Lee Cushing thing... Um, sure. is you know that there's I think there's something really distinctive about particularly about being a kind of a fan of or a you know a cinephile where we don't you know kind of for a lot of regular film goers you watch because you know there's a star that's involved or there's you know the kind of the genre is appealing or the story looks appealing and it's not that those things aren't true for cinephiles but I think we're much more likely to kind of go um, you know to be interested in um, a film because of an actor from something else, or because it's the cinematographer is the same from another film that we you know that we're aware of, and you become much more kind of aware of the structures of production behind the films that you're watching. Yes, um, uh, in a way that helps you kind of create a, a, a web or network, you know, in terms of your kind of cinephilia, if you like. Yes, and and it's. Two things, I think it's the desire to c- connect things, yeah. Um, because then you, you're building up like a wider universe of understanding, and also it's the desire for familiarity to an extent. You know, you will go along a certain line of things that you know something about while also learning and encountering new things at the same time. So for me, it's like kind of, it's a kind of balance between the two. Um, so therefore, 
in a way, uh, when Howard and I are talking about all these movies, we're approaching them almost as an episode in a TV series or like, um, you know, the latest football game from your team, you know, we'll, we'll be saying, um, oh, how, how is Cushing in this one? <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, or th- yeah. I think Lee has been a bit misserved by this. Um, so, so there is that aspect to it as well. I suppose um, I should also outline that um, I, I think that the, the value of these films lies in two things. One, it's kind of historical in the context of, of the of film film industry history. Um, you know, I think that th- there is a kind of mode in cinema uh, of the Gothic, which is kind of become inflected with maybe more um, Englishness than it did in literature because, you know, you have like the Universal movies... Uh, yeah. with all those actors with English accents. And, yeah. and even now, that kind of continues, you know. Um, uh, you know, I think a couple of weeks ago you mentioned Crimson Peak. Yes. And every now and then, uh, Hollywood or another national cinema produces a movie of this kind. Yeah. And, uh, and they tend to kind of use British actors and sometimes British settings. Mm. Um you know, I mean, like The Others is is an example because that's yeah. a Spanish film, isn't it? Um, and it stars an American actress but doing an English accent. Yeah. Um, I think she's Australian, uh, you know, though, isn't she? Oh, sorry, yes. Is, yeah, uh, yeah. Yes, Nicole alone. Kidman. Yeah. Thank you for the correction. It's okay. Um, but yes. <laughs> but yes. Um, you know, so whereas I think when it, the kind of time period of the Hammer films is almost the only part of a, hist- a film history in which those kind of movies were actually being made in England yes. by British people. Yeah, and I suppose if then um, if you kind of go back and look at the the roots of kind of, you know, the I mean, part of the reason why I picked the two films that, that I did for, you know, to discuss today is because of their links to, you know, kind of the iconic works of Gothic horror literature, you know, yeah. which are both, you know, written by Brits. Um, yes. So I think, you know, but yeah, it does have that, you know, kind of lineage, doesn't it? That, And I think particularly for a global audience, there's, you know, something about the kind of archaic structures um, of British society um, that, you know, kind of have that capacity for horror that maybe particularly something like, you know, kind of newer, you know, cultures like, you know, American culture and it's contemporary form don't don't have that in the same way and so it's culturally I suppose it's kind of easier for them to kind of cash out out you know the associations that they have with you know our kind of historical legacy if you like yes and I mean you know I was watching Sleepy Hollow the other day Mm. which is set in New York um in a a Dutch settlement in mm. New York at the turn of the century. Yeah. But yeah, most of the actors are English. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. And Johnny Depp is the lead, but yes. doing an English accent. Uh, yes, yes, you know. yes. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I, I think that's uh, something that is a through line kind of almost yeah. throughout cinema. And I, I'm not complaining about it at all. I think that, you know, if you were xenophobic, you could kind of um, feel that, that maybe it suggests that uh, America and maybe other countries kind of look on uh, Britain as as being kind of a more backward place or more kind of 
um, a, a believable setting for like old-fashioned types of hmm. uh, horror, um, yeah. ghosts and and demons and things. I mean, I remember when um, Ghostbusters three which was never made, was, was kind of being mooted. And I remember reading an interview with Ernie Hudson where um, he said they were talking about ideas for the film and he said, my wife says we ought to go to England because you've got some serious ghosts at work. <laughs> um, well. But, you know, I, I, I think it's... on. I, I actually think it's a fun kind of persona uh, for yeah. our nation to take on in, in the same way that... Um, you know, American TV audiences think that this entire country is small villages where people get murdered all the time. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, uh, I, I think that's kind of lovable. So it's kind of, those, it's kind of the, lovable that we think it, that they they think it's you know kind of the backdrop yeah. for horrendous crime and ritual the, and. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, and it's the the, yeah. the kind of the whole kind of cozy atmosphere yes. of such things as well that that only seems to be able to be done around here i mean yeah you can't imagine an american remake of midsummer murders no no Um, and i think there's something similar to um you know thinking about a film like hot fuzz which of course is not horror but you know it's clearly drawing on a lot of horror tropes that just you know part of what makes that funny is the britishness of it and that all those you know kind of the characters seem not just kind of recognizable horror archetypes but particularly British, as in, you know, it's difficult to imagine those types of characters existing in an American space and being what they are. But it's the fun of of dragging kind of American action movie oh, tropes yeah, yeah, yeah. into Absolutely. that. Oh yeah, absolutely. But the horror, the horror, yeah, kind of the Wicker Man kind of illusions and stuff. Yes. Is, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, kind of the fun of that movie is it, it. It's like an American action movie, but set in England. Yeah. But it becomes yes. a British horror movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, there's, there's loads of fun to be had there. So those are the two positions from which I value these movies, I guess, the, the kind of historical context um, and and my own kind of personal connection going back to kind of teenage years. Um, oh, I suppose I should also say I think that another kind of historical value of these kind of movies, or at least understanding the making of them, is that, you know, they were kind of... Uh, part of the last period of of bulk British film production. Yeah. Um, And lots of the people who worked on them, particularly in the kind of technical areas, but also some of the actors and things, would go on to, well, basically in the 80s, the only movies that were really being made in this country were American productions that would come over here. So therefore... You know all the Indiana Jones movies and the Star Wars movies, and uh, um, a lot of the movies which kind of continue to have pop culture cachet now were um, were made by the same people, um, largely behind the scenes, um, and and therefore I I think it it's good to kind of understand that background to them, and you know I think for instance George Lucas chose Elstree Studios um, to film most of Star Wars because he knew from the Hammer movies that there was a whole kind of background of oh, okay. um, uh, of expertise. You know, in the days when you, uh, a technician would actually be employed by a studio and it's like, next week you're doing Star Wars. 
uh, so they knew that they were going to a studio where they'd have people who were used to doing kind of extraordinary uh, stuff on not so much money. Um, so the kind of hammer background, the fantasy background worked into that. So so I, th I think that there is a carryover from the context in which the, the Hammer and Amicus films were made in, into kind of movies that are more regularly still discussed now, even though the actual, a lot of the actual movies that, that Cushing and Lee and the others made uh, are a little bit forgotten about. Although I immediately qualify that, I know that they're not forgotten about by the fans and a lot of people who would listen to this podcast uh, who love them very much. And, and and that's kind of why I wanted to talk about them, because because I love them and, and I want to celebrate them. But also um, kind of maybe if, if we have a chance of um, attracting people to to know about them who, who don't know about them, to just fill in a little bit of the context and and maybe encourage these people to possibly watch some of them who've not seen them before. I think that more or less sums up my kind of broad um, position on on these kind of movies as a whole, without discussing too much of the uh, of the individual movies. But I do think another thing that I feel important to do as a fan of these movies and as someone who cares about these movies is to talk to people. Um, who don't have the same connection to movies, to these movies that I have, um, and to see how these films kind of react to kind of more modern scrutiny, um, because you know we must uh, kind of re-examine uh, art um, always, and uh, it's it's perfectly fun for me and Howard because we love the movies to kind of go on a journey of. Um, in a way, what we're doing together is we were talking earlier about, you know, you don't want to run out of things to watch. Um, but of course, what what you can do when you've watched everything is you can try and see them again through someone's eyes. Absolutely. Yeah. I enjoy his perspective and I, I try and bring mine. Um, and obviously we don't agree on everything. Um, that's that's kind of not the point. Um, so, and that's why I was really pleased that you're happy to talk about these and, and take a look at, at these movies. Yeah, it was, it was a, it was a, you know, kind of nice excuse to kind of acquaint myself with some work that I, you know, kind of, as I said, hadn't been necessarily drawn to before. But I know that obviously you have a great affection for. Um, and I think the other thing to note as well is that you know, just in the in the the lovely kind of message you sent me with the kind of links is just how accessible these films are, you know, kind of on free platforms. Um, so you know, are, if yeah. you know, even if if a, a kind of listener hasn't seen you know the films that you've talked about, is that most of them are kind of available on YouTube in some form, um, which is great. Yes, well, you know, <laughs> although at, at varying levels of legality, I have to say. But um, one of the films that you watched, though, The Satanic Rides of Dracula, is yes. actually, um, it's public domain. So anyone yeah. can put it on any platform yeah. and watch it. it and the, the only real question is, do you uh, see a good quality print of it? I mean, it is on Amazon Prime, but it does not look great. Although it's kind of strange that that movie's public domain, but the other Hammer Dracula mm. films are not. <laughs> so, But they're there um, anyway. So. <laughs> thanks for pointing that out about how accessible they are. And um, and I'll also mention quite a lot of them turn up regularly on the Horror Channel in the UK as well, so it's worth 
kind of keeping an eye on that and we'll try and flag those up in our show if if i know of any show uh, any showings that are coming up so let's talk about the curse of frankenstein for a bit yes let's do that more than a hundred years ago in a mountain village in switzerland lived a man whose strange experiments with the dead have since become a legend a legend that is still told with horror the world over We've only just started, just opened the door. Look, now's the time to go through that door and find what lies beyond it. But don't you see, Paul? We've discovered the source of life itself, and we've used it to restore a creature that was dead. This is Frankenstein, who revolted against nature, who experimented with the devil and was forever cursed. His unwilling collaborator was Paul Kremp. I can't prove you murdered. But I can stop you using his brain. Why? He has no further use for it. Don't be a Be careful! Go down it! Only two women ever entered this house of evil. Elizabeth, come back! Elizabeth, the lovely cousin who had promised to marry him, and Justine, the maid, who kept passionate and secret rendezvous with her master. Won't you understand you're in real danger? What Victor is doing is dangerous to everyone in the house. Possibly conceive what dreadful thing he's planning to do. What are you trying to tell me, Paul? That Victor's wicked? Insane? Wicked? Insane? Evil? Call Frankenstein what you will. A demon had made a man-made monster. And now, the monster was the master. Paul! What are you going to do? For your sake and to protect Elizabeth, I've so far kept silent. But now I shall go to the authorities and have them destroy that creature and see that you pay for these atrocities. No! So, you can come at this uh, from a point of view of uh, comparing it to all the versions of the story, uh, maybe. I mean, and I, I can compare it to all the versions, but I have to confess that I've never actually read the original novel, which is terrible, because it is, you know, yeah. the first work of science fiction. It's monumental in its importance. It is. Um, and it, and it's one. It's something that I've been intending to get round to reading, and, and I never have. Yeah, I, mean, I think for me, my again, I'm just it's probably useful to, for for the listener to know this. My my kind of road into horror was actually through mm. you know kind of um, the novels and then the kind of early '90s film versions of both Dracula and Frankenstein. So they are two okay. two books that I've read um, and two films that I hold quite close to my kind of a heart because of the you know the kind of being a kind of gateway drug into harder horror stuff um and yeah so i kind of so that's kind of kind of part of the reason why i kind of picked the curse of frankenstein um yeah so yeah and obviously 1957 it's kind of fairly early on in the kind of the the, the kind of films that we're talking about daniel confirm well it's the first horror film with Peter Cushing right. and Christopher Lee. Okay. It's the first colour film produced by Hammer. Right. Um, Cushing and Lee had been in a couple of films together earlier, but, um, you know, like they, they both have smallish parts in, I think, Olivier's Hamlet. Right. Um, and also um, the original version of Moulin Rouge, which was directed by John Huston yep. in 1950, I think. 
but this was the first movie in which they were kind of almost the stars. I mean, really, it's Cushing's film. Yeah, it is. Lee is kind of hardly in it. <laughs> yes, but there's, you know, I think there's, I'm not sure how this would have been at the time, but there's that sense of kind of knowing that they're both in them, uh, in it, and knowing that, that Lee is the monster, just waiting <laughs> for what yes. seems like a long time to see him. Well, he does get, he, he gets significant billing at the beginning, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah. It says, and Christopher Lee as the creature. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm not sure how audiences would have received that. I do think that Hammer very quickly became aware that uh, the idea of a horror film with Cushing as the the human lead, I like. I was, I was going to say hero, but yeah. that's not really applicable in case of no. Frankenstein. But he's like the, the <laughs> yeah. lead. The protagonist. Yes, yeah. but then Lee, but Lee plays the monster. Yeah. That was, I mean, immediately they did Dracula, which conforms to that. Yeah. And then they did The Mummy, which conforms to that. And then they did The Hound of the Baskervilles, which doesn't conform to that because Lee doesn't play the hound. No. Um, <laughs> but but still, you know, and all those movies came out within three years. Which really goes, you know, sort of demonstrates, doesn't it, that, that kind of way in which movies in this period were really kind of, you know, production lines. It was a high turnover. Yeah, very much so. Uh, a game which I think is kind of um, instructive. Um I don't know how useful it is to, to know about it in terms of a modern filmmaking point of view, because but I think that because filmmaking has changed so much, the actual technicalities of it, mm. and the, but so much is so much easier to achieve now. Uh, you know, in terms of photography and lighting, um, that you know it doesn't sound too mad to to make a feature film very quickly you know like um just off the top of my head Prevenge mm. um you know that was made very fast wasn't it yeah uh, uh, but on the other hand uh, these movies were made very fast in an era when you still had clockwork cameras and um unsynchronized sound yeah, but it's the Hollywood model, isn't it, that kind of, you know, kind of helps dictate that, that way of working, which is much more yes. kind of industrial and where, you know, kind of, as you said, you know, kind of technicians and, you know, the kind of key creatives and actors were all contracted to do a certain number, you know, so that, you know, in, in many ways that, that kind of explains part of the rate of production at that point for films. Um in a way that we don't really see in the same way anymore. So, uh, But I, I also think it's kind of impressive that Hammer was able to do that, considering that Britain didn't really have a studio system. No. Um, they had a series of studios which rose and fell. You know, they had Ealing with the comedies, they had um, Gainsborough mm -hmm. with the melodramas, and they had Hammer with the horror, and it's kind of interesting that each studio kind of became attached to a genre. Yeah almost um whereas uh the studio system um in hollywood had been churning out films kind of earlier and for longer um i think because those kind of vertically integrated uh oligopolies uh, which had obviously started to break up um yeah by the end of the 50s like everywhere but they've been very kind of self-supporting um and I feel a bit like the uh, in Britain the situation was more like the studio was out on their own and they had to kind of raise the cash and make the film um, and, and kind of almost do everything on a film-by-film -film basis, you know, strike a new deal with a distributor. This is why the Hammer films 
um, are kind of a little bit all over the place in terms of who owns them. Yeah. Because they were distributed by different people. and So in a way, they were kind of caught in the middle of this big transition. You said before about it being the first Hammer film in colour, which I didn't know, which for, for me kind of explains one of the kind of the, the things I really that surprised me about it was exactly how colourful it is and how kind of well lit it is for a kind of horror film. Yes. Um, and yes. I suppose that there's that kind of propensity of going, OK, well, we're, we're shooting colour now, so we better make it worth it in terms of the money we're spending. Um so, yeah, I mean, for me, it kind of, it it lacked that, you know, kind of chiaroscuro thing that I really love from horror, but I now understand it from a kind of production perspective because of that. Yeah, and it, it does lack that, absolutely, which, I mean, interesting, obviously, the pre-Curse of Frankenstein Hammer horror films, because they did do a few, um, Quite a Mass Experiment, Quite a Mass 2, and X the Unknown in the mid-50s, they are all part of that Kairoskiro thing and they do have that kind of, that they create menace through that. Mm. Um, and Curse of Frankenstein is very much the beginning of a different approach and it does, by nature, kind of eschew a lot of the things which we might uh, go to horror for, you know. Um, and, and I think you said you'd, you didn't find them hugely frightening and, and that's fair. Um, yeah. I don't think they really are um i think they were shocking at the time and if you've really never seen violence or blood on screen mm. that might have been kind of traumatizing almost yeah um but 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 they're obviously on that level kind of tame now there are much more violent there have yeah. been much more violent films and TV shows for a long time now and and these kids these films are, are mostly kind of suitable for like 12 year olds yeah. um and but on the other hand i think that another part of the context that um we can fill in about them is that horror was kind of becoming something else at the time with the kind of rise of youth culture in the 50s and, and movies aimed at um a young audience mm. so like even in hollywood you'd kind of moved beyond the golden age universal horror movies and you'd moved into this kind of monster b movie phase where you might have a movie that is about, supposedly about dracula or frankenstein but they they would be changed that um they would not aim for a feel of of dread no, or I mean... a particular sense of sophistication and you were getting things like um you know i was a teenage werewolf yeah. and things like that by yeah. this point it's it's funny because I think with this it it feels I was thinking about it I was watching it and and there's just kind of two think points I'd make one is that that you know kind of emphasis on well lit and color um, does two things for me in terms of it not being horrific is that I think darkness is really important in a kind of horror text. Um, because I think it like sure. one of the innate things that we do with that is that you kind of lean towards the screen, kind of in, sort of interrogating the frame, waiting for something to kind of jump out of that dark, those dark negative spaces. Um, mm. And this one was kind of absent of those. And I think then again, the well litness of it um, kind of, again, I was talking earlier about that kind of sense of it being kind of the artifice of it. It became, you know, kind of increasingly it was um, watching kind of clearly, you know, things on sets rather than kind of feeling like we were in authentic spaces, which meant that later when the, kind of, there is some action that happens outside, that felt quite jarring. Right. From, you know, just, 
you know, from a sort of kind of modal shift from, you know, kind of internal studio into external locations. Um, so that I think is kind of something to kind of think about. But then I think also there's um, there's kind of the point of around genre, which is that there were times when I was watching the film that because it was so kind of bereft of what I thought was kind of genuine peril, um, mm. that it felt like a kind of quite a masculine melodrama. Right. In that this kind of centre of the film are these, you know, kind of two male characters who are kind of ideologically opposed, but not in a way that prompts either of them to do anything terribly different. So there's just a lot of kind of, you know, the kind of uh, Urquhart character just sort of challenging um, uh, Cushing's Frankenstein about not doing what he's doing, but Frankenstein continues anyway. Um, so it just, you know, there didn't seem to be the kind of level of kind of body horror that I think I would expect from from a Frankenstein well version of Frankenstein um much more kind of okay yeah dialogue uh I mean you are you are right uh absolutely also masculine melodrama by the way is a great phrase to describe a lot of these films um <laughs> thanks I, I I think that's that's actually fantastic and I think uh melodrama is um, a kind of genre or style of, of storytelling in cinema which lives or dies on the actors. Um, oh, yeah. I think that, again, um, going back to the fact that I like these actors so much, I think with different actors, this would be not a good movie. Um, uh, and I think that, you know, there's... I mean... Uh, people have different positions on the quality of the scripts. I think the script is pretty good, but at the same time, I also think that there are lots of lines and, and scenes in it uh, that just would not stand up if they were not being delivered by Peter Cushing. Like the bit where he and Paul Kremper have an argument and he says, but you won't win, Paul. And do you know why you won't win? And just things like that, and I just thought it's his delivery is so crisp and um, his and so steely as well. Um, yes, I think his performance when you cartoon it like that, um, it obviously seems very stylized and very unreal. But he, there's something he's able to make it real. I I don't find myself disbelieving him in in this role mm. or, or kind of most of the roles and that and i think really in a way he is the center of, of most of the sense of danger that the film does have in that mm. the film um is not frightening in a kind of horror way that we might understand it from the, the way the genre has developed yeah but at the same time you wouldn't want to be on, in a room alone with him no uh, you know, I I think he is frightening because you believe him, um, and and you know, you, therefore you take him seriously. I have to say though, I I I didn't believe oh, okay. him particularly. Um, I think I, what's interesting is I I believe him believed him more as a performance at the beginning and the end of the film. Mm -hmm. um with the you know in the cell uh, that was i found more convincing um and i think you know for me i drew a line between why it's not that i you know i can see that he's a very fine performer and you know as i you know kind of 
alluded to in some of our early com- um, communications. I really sort of see, um, you know, kind of Benedict Cumberbatch with right. my modern eyes in, you know, kind of uh, Cushing in this era. Um, and that's not just because of the National Theatre um, Frankenstein production, but I think there's just something about the kind of angularity. I'm not sure that's a word, but I'm going to use it. Um, no, I know what you mean. Well, his, you know, and he's very pointed. Um, they're both Sherlock Holmeses as well. Yes, exactly. You know, and that makes yeah, yeah. complete sense. <laughs> yes, yeah. there is something very Cushing about Cumberbatch, I think. Um, but that said, the um, I think what where where the film sort of slightly fell apart for me. Um, as a version of this story is the fact that we don't like there's very little development of Frankenstein's backstory in terms of understanding what's motivating him to um, to you know create the creature to do the thing that we know that he does whereas both the novel and kind of other versions I've seen have given really kind of strong kind of sympathetic motivators to that character so even though we know he you know is clearly doing the wrong thing there are kind of human and emotional reasons behind it which kind of you know places i think the spectator in an interesting position or the reader in an interesting position around kind of you you know you see that he's hurting you understand why he's doing what he's doing but nevertheless it's not the right thing i didn't i have to say kind of find that this film not because he's performance necessarily but this film kind of gave the meat that i would need to kind of you know buy into him as a, a kind of a character that i you know kind of wanted to follow or understood his actions I do agree with what you're saying, actually. Um, but I find it is a strength. I I also love uh, other versions of the story, and um, particularly the, the Branner one. Oh, and by the way, um, just to kind of uh, draw some parallels between uh, the our two kind of uh, formative experiences with horror... Mm. Um, uh, uh, yes, Bram Stoker's Dracula and the novel Dracula and the film Mary Shelley's Frankenstein all kind of factored in very early with me as well. Um, I, I just never got around to reading the novel Frankenstein, but I was very fond of of the of the book and uh, uh, of Dracula and uh, of that uh, Coppola film. And I read the screenplay of the film and I, I'm kind of familiar with the intricacies of the story there mm. and how that movie tried to reflect it, which most other versions of Dracula just don't bother yeah. to do that. Uh, but my point is that I do appreciate those and I appreciate the character of Victor in, in those versions of the story. And he is this, this conflicted... Um, understandable to a certain ex- extent, sympathetic mm. character, and all of that is cut from the Hammer one, and it remains cut. There are six movies about this guy, uh, Peter Cushing's mm. Frankenstein, and he's just constantly trying to make creatures, <laughs> and you never really know why. Okay. You never really yeah. know why. And and what I think. Um, is something that his performance does for me anyway. Um, is take that uh, emptiness and uh, make it fascinating. Uh, make it like he's possessed in some way. You mm. never quite know what's driving him to do this, but you just know that he damn well is absolutely certain that he wants to do it. And occasionally he he does kind of in the later films waver his path a bit. The quality of writing kind of goes up and down. Uh, and depth comes and goes but you never lose the sense that 
this guy will do what he's set out to do, even though you do, you don't quite know why. And yeah, I I do think it's it's maybe an issue. Well, it, on paper, it is certainly an issue with the storytelling that we don't know uh, the large bulk of Victor's motivation. But on the other hand, I do think it it's a it it's a fascinating. Um, element of Cushing's characterization that he is driven by this thing that you don't know why he's doing it and yet he keeps doing it and despite uh tons and tons of obstacles um throughout the movies and he just keeps on going um mm. and yeah so I, I mean I find that an attraction and because of the force that Cushing brings to it that kind of comes out of nowhere you know the bit where um he is breaking into the crypt where um, Professor Waldman has just been placed because he wants to steal Professor Waldman's oh, yeah. brain. And Paul Kremper turns up yes. um, to stop him doing that. And they have a bit of a scuffle. And the glass jar <laughs> that Cushing has put the brain in smashes. Yeah. And uh, and uh, Frankenstein just completely skitzes out, and all he says is, <laughs> "If you've damaged it, if you've damaged it." But there's just a, such yeah. a mania in the way he does that. That's the kind of thing that I enjoy. Yeah, the Kremper, um, you know, kind of. I think it was, you know, described Frankenstein as as protagonist earlier, but I think maybe there's an argument for Kremper being more the kind of protagonist. Interesting. Because and in in that we seem to understand him a little bit more, and the the kind of story kicks off, doesn't it? Really, at the point at which kind of Kremper meets Frankenstein. Yeah, that's true. Um, but the you know the, I think there's a kind of there is a kind of quiet horror in how ineffective Kremper is at stopping Victor from doing any of these horrible things. Yes, because as, as the, the film is you know kind of it's a little bit of a, a kind of um, I don't know if you've seen. Um, uh, Jonathan Glazer's, I think it's Jonathan Glazer's Sexy Beast. Yes, half, yes. Um, yeah, which is just, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, two characters essentially, you know, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ray Winston and Ben Kingsley. <laughs> yeah, just going, uh, Kingsley doing, going, do the job, and uh, Winston going, no, and just repeating that over and over. It felt similar in this film, in that, you know, kind of, <laughs> Kremper keeps saying, don't do this, Victor, and Victor just goes, I'm going to do it anyway. You know, that's that seems to be the kind of primary conflict in the film, is that kind of, you know, opposition from Kremper, which never really kind of, um, he's able to... Um, kind of it you know kind of fully force his will upon victor until the kind of the final moments and yeah. having him been the you know the kind of the arguably the moral heart of the film in terms of you know a person that you you as a viewer can kind of relate to um that felt really dark the ending yes <laughs> yes uh, without giving it away but it's it's dark but it's it's understandable as well oh yeah um, but it seems like you know kind of having not been as forceful as he could have been all the way through the kind of the 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 fate that he leaves Victor to seems seems a little bit sort of not I don't want to say out of character but just it's like an overcompensation isn't it yes yeah yeah, yeah. it's like I really messed up till this point so now I'm going to really make sure that that doesn't happen again yes um, uh, yeah uh, and in a way at that moment there is a certain amount of sympathy that the audience can feel for Victor because it's it's mm. not quite fair even though Victor has done some horrible things yes um yeah and the kind of movies the subsequent movies in the series kind of dance with that a lot the idea of of he's doing sometimes he's doing ambiguous things sometimes he's doing straight out bad things but there are people kind of ranged against him 
who are justifies the different degrees and at certain points you can understand where he comes from a little bit and and, and do feel a, a little bit more sympathy for him and again um Cushing is an actor who's able to kind of capitalize on essentially these like little hints in the script to ring bits of sympathy and uh, kind of various emotional range um the other mm. thing that I mention about this movie is that it does set up the masculine melodrama of the Frankenstein series. Every single Frankenstein film, the central relationship is between Frankenstein and this a male assistant. Um, it's a mm. different assistant in every film. Um, and then, you know, a creature is created at some point. Um, and that they kind of repeat that formula. And then in a lot of ways the the entertaining quality of the movie is is based on uh how good the other actor is um yeah like in, in revenge of frankenstein it's francis matthews um and he's quite interesting and also the creature is played by an actor called michael gwen who's great um so that's that's a really good one but it does kind of go up and down a little bit um, yeah, and I suppose I mean it's you know it's it's clearly a, a product of its time as well in the way that the two female characters yeah. are, you know, they're entirely secondary, <laughs> entirely, you know, um, yeah. Which you know, as a, as a female viewer and as a feminist, it makes me kind of you know slightly kind of uh, twitch and wink. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that certainly the 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 one I felt most most story for was uh, kind of Justine. And her treatment, I mean, yes. if, if, at the point at which I hadn't I'd decided that I definitely wasn't a fan of it, this particular version of Victor Frankenstein, it was in the treatment of Justine in the film. Yes, absolutely. He's horrible to her. Um, and yeah, yeah there's, there's no two ways around it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 he's definitely the villain of the film. But, but um, yes. uh, I don't think that's the same as saying that Paul Kremper is kind of the hero, even though he's more no. relatable. But I do like the fact that you've brought out some nice things to say about Paul Kremper because that character and that actor get a lot of flack. Um, I, I mean, some people just think he's awful. And it is kind of known that the actor Robert Urquhart was kind of distasteful of the movie. Um, yeah. Once it came out and he saw it, he went, right, I'm never having anything to do with anything Hammer ever again. Um, but I think he's fine. Um, and you also brought up the point that uh, you know, it, he doesn't age in step with Cushing, and he uh, and actually, you know, in the film, he's Victor's teacher from Victor's early teens, yeah. and then stays with him for the rest of the film. But once yeah. Victor has grown up enough to be played by Cushing, Cushing is actually older than Urquhart, um, so that kind of threw you out. <laughs> it didn't work for me. I mean, it never occurred to me that Urquhart was younger than Cushing, although I, I must have known it on some level. Um, yeah. But it, it's more like the suspension of disbelief between Melvin Hayes as the young Victor and then Cushing as the older one. So, uh, uh, so I mean, I would take it, I think we're meant to take it that presumably Victor is only in his early 20s or at the most 30. 
uh, he, well, in the film. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, this is one of those moments, isn't it, I think, in film where you really get... I, I find I'm, I'm kind of uh, encouraged to think about this and the big differences between our expectations around film and verisimilitude and theatre. So in a the theatre with a bit of makeup, <laughs> yeah, I would absolutely bought Robert Urquhart uh, as, you know, as, as Kremble, you know, the kind of old, older Kremper um, and Cushing as the, you know, younger. Um, but in film, <laughs> just, you know... Yes. Because ostensibly what we're looking at is kind of filmed reality, although clearly it's not. Um, yeah, it just it just didn't work for me. And I think that was like my kind of first moment of going, oh, not sure I'm going to be able to kind of go with this um, for the duration. Um, but, you know, as it kind of went on, what I found is that I was, you know, I'm not, I, I wouldn't call myself a great assessor of performance necessarily. But what I found with Cramper is that, you know, he was clearly trying to do the right thing um, in terms of the way the character was written. Um, and that that gave me a, you know, kind of an anchor into investing in the story that I wasn't getting from Frankenstein. Right. Um, and I think maybe his visual youth kind of works with his ineffectualness. Frankenstein and, and Cushing kind of dominates him in the story yeah. and on screen, and that yes. kind of is appropriate in a way. I think maybe that's what they were going for. Um, I'd assume that um, in an ideal world, they'd have liked to have cast an, an older actor as Grandpa um, and make him look younger for the first scene. Yeah. Uh, rather than cast an actor who's the appropriate age for the first scene and then try and convince us that he's older for the rest of the film. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that's that's much more of a leap. But no, it is nice to hear um, just just Grandpa kind of reevaluated because Howard really hates him. <laughs> um, oh dear, he does go on about poor Grandpa. <laughs> Um, so we, we've spent a lot of time on uh, Curse of Frankenstein. We haven't got much yeah. time left, but obviously it's, it's worth mentioning Dracula. It's happening right now in London. New York could be next. Or Paris, or Rome, or Tokyo. It's happening right now to this girl. Perhaps... It's your turn next. We are not dealing with ordinary criminals. The real force is more sinister, more obscene than any monstrosity you can think of. Lord of corruption, master of the undead. Count Dracula. what you want, Count Dracula. A last blaze of utter horror and violence, ghastly annihilation of an entire planet. Is this your own death wish? I call upon you to witness my supreme trial. So like you, I'm a huge fan of the original Dracula novel and I will just kind of fill in a bit of production background on, on this movie. Sure. It's the seventh 
full Dracula film from Hammer. I think I lose count because by saying full Dracula film, I mean Dracula film that actually has Dracula in it. Um, <laughs> okay. And uh, and it's only the third one which has both Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee because Van Helsing okay. is actually not in most of them. And it's the second one to be set contemporary to when it was made. All of the earlier ones are set in unspecified Victorian era. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're kind of spe- mostly set not in Britain either. Even though the novel is, the original, the film that Hammer made of Dracula in 1958, without kind of stating it outright, kind of moves the whole story into Europe because they weren't, they didn't have the budget to kind of do the kind of globe trotting that the story in the novel does. Yeah. So therefore, it's just a few, that they're, they're like a few adjacent towns in. Um, a European country, and you know, maybe they they go over the border into Transylvania a couple of times, yeah. and that's about it. And this movie is is one that I've always, uh, I guess, I've always enjoyed. Possibly part of that is that before I watched it when I was fifteen, I was kind of aware of the negative press about it, and the reason that kind of purists don't like it is because it moves away from the Gothic time period. Obviously, so it's it moved further away from the novel than even the films already were. Um, the the previous movie in the series, Dracula AD seventy two, was pretty reviled, and this is the sequel to that. So it's kind of guilt by association, and I can I I can certainly see that if you love the the gothic qualities of earlier Dracula films or of the novel, then you. Those are pretty much absent here. But what I take it as is an interesting genre switch because basically it's a sci-fi spy thriller that <laughs> happens to have Van Helsing in it and it happens to the villain happens to be Count Dracula, yeah. but in a modern-day setting where he's the head of a, a corporation. Um, and I think if it kind of fits into the 70s uh, TV genre of things like the Sweeney and the New Avengers. Yeah, it does feel, doesn't it, very much like it's trying to do that, cash in on those associations. And the director was from those kind yeah. of things. It's got Joanna Lumley yeah. in it, um, who had not done the New Avengers yet, but it's it's still that there's that link. William Franklin did both as well, um, and and it, and I love the musical score in it, which is like the most seventies musical score you can imagine. But at the same time, there's something about it that feels very televisual. So the whole thing has a kind of relaxed, almost Bergeracky kind of quality <laughs> to it, which is is not what I would say to someone who I was recommending it to. No, uh, but I can say it to you as you've seen it. Yeah. Um, but but I I can appreciate that, and what uh, and especially I do like the fact that. You know, it's a sequel to the Dracula uh, adaptations that Hammer had done. And if you, but if you take it and you compare it directly with, especially the first Dracula with Cushing and Lee, it's a huge genre shift. Mm. The period has changed. The genre has changed. It, it reminds me of, um, you know, going from Alien to Aliens. Um, you know, the, the, there's qualities of an action movie in the Stonic Rites of Dracula, and I like the the kind of the sequel that takes a um a conceptual leap and it's diluted by the fact that this is not the second film in the series it was the you know seventh mm. <laughs> um, but uh, and 
you know, without discussing the films in between, you you can see it as the the absolute lowest point of a gradual decline. But I think there's a, a freshness into the way that it kind of leaps into that kind of spy TV style that, that lifts it above a lot of the others. Yeah, um, I mean, I think so, I think at the beginning it certainly feels less horror. I think that kind of whole opening sequence sort of does feel very sort of you know kind of television thriller chase sequence. Um, you know, kind of ambiguous settings in the dead of night and ambiguous characters are clearly up to no good. Um, yeah, yeah, so that kind of... And, and you know, initially, no trace of a vampire, you know, is <laughs> for a film. Yes. Yeah, you kind of go, oh, OK, well, that's not quite what I was expecting. And certainly that, you know, kind of alienation from its original kind of gothic, or at least kind of associated gothic settings, is, I think is kind of... Is, is interesting and grabbed me pretty quickly, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, I, and I, I think that just as a kind of thriller, uh, the opening is quite good, isn't it? As you mentioned, the um, the lack of dialogue yeah. in the opening and the fact that you have this kind of sequence where, um, like, an agent witnesses an occult ceremony and, and escapes, but then um, we see more of the ceremony as he kind of tells other people about it and he keeps flashing back. Yeah. Um, there's a really nice kind of structure to that. Um, that is, is kind of extended really well and, and brings you into the plot. And and kind of and elements then like Van Helsing and and eventually Dracula kind of come in, I think, fairly organically. Yeah, I mean, they, they sort of, yeah, I, I would agree. They're kind of folded in a way that seems relevant to the kind of plotting of the film and a way of explaining the kind of mysteries that, you know, the kind of the investigators that we are, you know, introduced to um, have to kind of um, deal with. Um, I have to say they all seem to sort of deal with the idea of vampires, you know, (laughs) kind of satanic rituals reasonably well. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. In a way, it feels a bit like, I mean, it is a sequel to a film, um, to, you know, Dracula AD 72 also had the character of Inspector Murray in it and they've kind of gone through this before a bit. But at the same time, it do, it almost feels like it comes out of a TV series that's like about an X Files like team where they're just used to this yeah. stuff. <laughs> and again, that's that's probably one of the reasons that I kind of find it charming. I also that probably works for me because I I'm familiar with the actors. I mean, I don't know if you spotted the the, the remarkable number of Hitchhikers Guide to the Galaxy connections in this movie. I have to say, I did not. Um, I probably would okay. have done, um, or because I watched it on a sort of slightly smaller screen. Um, and obviously the, the, right. the quality was not great, but um, I will trust you sure? okay. <laughs> when you say that there well, are. Um, uh, what's he called? Uh, Matthews, the kind of civil servant who gets it all rolling. He is slarty Bartfast. No. Uh, wow. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and Major Torrance, yeah. the kind of commander of the unit, he is the voice of the book in the later Hitchhikers okay. um, series the ones during the 2000s. Okay, so not Peter Jones. Um, and then Lumley was in them as well. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. It's like, over time, it's a film that's become more <laughs> hitchhikers-y, um, which is kind of slightly bizarre. Yeah, and I think for me as well, I think there's a, that's a really kind of uh, a neat, neat point for me to kind of jump on and talk about the way in which I find really difficult to watch this film and then not kind of... Uh, retrospectively kind of see uh, or make intertextual references to other texts, not not intertextual references because clearly they're not there, but the way in which, you know, the kind of the setting of the film and the big house and the kind of the robes and the rituals and stuff, I was like, okay, that's eyes wide shut. Um, There's even bits, I think, with the kind of the fact that with the the kind of the, the, the 
what seems to be high priestess um kind of made me think a little bit about the um uh second episode of the first series of sherlock the blind banker i think there's some kind of elements of that right. you know it wouldn't surprise me at all if you know kind of Moffat and Gatiss and Euros Lynn, I think, who directed that episode, kind of were making some kind of connections to um, this particular film. I think this is definitely a movie which has influenced them. Uh, did you see their recent version of Dracula? I have not, I have to say. There is part of me that is, you know, kind of, again, I'm so attached to the kind of, uh, the you know, um, the the novel that I, I'm not I'm not ready to watch that version yet, although I will. I will, I clearly will. And actually, I think watching this film made me go, oh, come on, guys, you've really got to watch that version. Um, so, yeah, yes. so it wouldn't surprise me at all if there are kind of clear, clear references um, there. And then also, I know it was made slightly later, but I felt the kind of um, the sequence in the middle of the film, which is very much kind of the horror in this, you know, in this large house, felt quite Suspiria-like, which I know it can, can't have been because... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because of uh, the dating, but... Um, I, you know, I kind of I, it was very easy for me to make the connections between the two of those because I've seen them quite recently. So, um, yeah, so I think it's kind of in many ways quite rich film for uh, its you know kind of use of film language and you know the way in which I think as a contemporary viewer you can kind of locate it, you know, the retrospectively in a kind of wider canon of stuff. I know that you you've picked two films that have not got great representation of, of women in them. No. Um, I'm not saying that the, the vast canon of these movies are much better, although I think things <laughs> do improve. Um, mm. uh, and I think kind of part of, of the impact of Hammer, um, even though it's exploitative to an extent, is that the Hammer films put a, 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 um, a degree of female sexuality on screen that had not previously been seen. And I don't just mean nudity and things like that, because I think this started before censorship started to lack. Um, you know, uh, I think that in the very first Dracula film, it's kind of clear but unstated that um, the the women are very attracted to Dracula yeah. and things like that. Yeah. Um, uh, and and. Therefore, and women start to have kind of more powerful roles in, in the plots and things. And you do get a few appearances by the, the wonderful Barbara Shelley, who is a, a, a sadly kind of underused horror star, but she did get to play uh, a vampire, a gorgon, um, and a few heroines as well. You know, she kind of spans the kind of horror archetypes. Yeah. Um, but she's not here, though, is she? <laughs> she's not here, but no. no. So, um, but um, uh, I was going somewhere with that, though, which is that I, I do think that, well, of Titanic Writers of Dracula has never entirely seemed to lack strong women to me just because I associate Joanna Lumley so strongly with, yeah. like, the new Avengers. And, yeah, she she's pretty hapless in this movie and, and ends up the subject of a, a sacrificial act and... And has to get rescued and things like that. Yeah. But I do think there's the kind of seed of a great character. I know it will never happen, but I kind of wish that Hammer would now, because they keep trying to revive themselves as a company and, and, and yeah. obviously don't have much of an idea of how to exploit their back catalogue. I would love it if they did something where they brought Joanna Lumley back as the older version of this character and she's still a vampire hunter. Yeah, um, yeah and that'd be good. <laughs> You know, I, I think that there's um, 
there's real potential in this uh, in in that character in this movie and funnily enough uh it's potential which is pretty much entirely brought by Lumley the same character as in the previous film played by a different actor okay uh, and in that movie uh, she doesn't have uh, that at all for me though i just uh, i did you know kind of well i think contextually it's interesting because obviously there's uh, between the two films i've seen you know it's kind of late 50s and now kind of early 70s is there's clearly a big shift in what's what's acceptable on screen so they're kind of you know in the first sequence very very early on you know we have uh, some very clear kind of you know female nudity but that's in you know this kind of context of a satanic ritual where the kind of female body is being used as uh, you know kind of an altar and there's a kind of a, a a sequence later on in the film again i think it's, it's kind of flashback but we can we kind of there's the blood on her stomach and men putting her their fingers into the blood which you know is clearly <laughs> yeah clearly a metaphor for penetration um and then we have the the you know the way in which the kind of the 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 sacrificial cock which i think is deliberately and definitely a metaphor is you know right. kind of, that that's where the blood comes from isn't it so it's, it's clearly a kind of metaphor for things that they can't um uh, at that point kind of show on screen even though they can show you know kind of naked women um yeah and but i you know the thing that the 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 problem i have with it again and this is will will clearly be something we'll talk about in a future episode is the way in which kind of you know a woman's body is kind of the, is equated so strongly in horror as as sinful as the place on which sin is located um which is kind of clearly here um and then i think that's made slightly more problematic in a from a contemporary sense by the fact that you know whilst we have lots of women in the kind of the circle in in the film um that the high priestess is you know kind of um is clearly um east asian um and you know so there's a kind of way in which that her her femininity is being kind of even more othered and she's been made more different and exotic by um by the by the casting of uh, an asian actress um yes i'm very sensitive to that similar criticisms were actually made of the um blind banker um around those kind of you know kind of representation issues when you do have a limited you know kind of um uh, non-white or people of color kind of representation that you know that the way in which those characters are are depicted is important and yes this is 70s britain um yeah but nevertheless you know if we were to kind of value it in a contemporary sense we have i think kind of owe it to the world to be you know kind of vocal about criticisms around those particular areas oh, that's true um uh, i will offer a level of defense that i actually can't back up with facts or with a certain amount of speculation, I have always suspected that the reason that character is Asian is because the writer Don Horton, who I know something about because he also wrote for Doctor Who and Sapphire and Steel in the 70s, he was married to uh, a Taiwanese actress, I think she's Taiwanese, mm -hmm. Sam Lim, and he, and he had form for kind of writing her roles in his stuff. Okay. So I feel like he might have specified that that character should be Asian because he wanted them to cast her, but then they just didn't for whatever reason. Mm. I gutted. <laughs> they instead cast Barbara Euling, who who is you know one of the other very few at the time kind of working Asian actresses who who's another link to the Avengers. Sorry, Pixem Lim is Malaysian. She's still around. Turns up on TV now and again. Um, but uh, yeah, so so that's mm -hmm. kind of uh, my um, the the way I've always suspected that the reason that might have happened, 
Um, because although there is a lot yeah. of, uh, you know, dodgy kind of casting racial politics in 70s British productions, I think mainly it's not in Hammer films, oddly, uh, whether by accident or design. In fact, the next movie in which Peter Cushing played Van Helsing after this was uh, The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Was it? Which is obviously made in uh, China um, and and has pretty much an entirely Asian supporting cast. So both um, heroes and villains in Mm -hmm. the cast are are, are Asian. So um, so I kind of would would give this film a pass on those levels because I I don't detect that kind of institutionalised tendency to to racist casting. Also, I think it's... um, In a lot of these productions, Mm. I just give it a point if they've actually cast an Asian actor in a speaking role and not done the thing which a lot of contemporary productions do, which which is that, you know, you're supporting... Uh, character actors are played by genuine Asians, but the the lead speaking roles are played by, um, you know, white actors in makeup. There's, uh, there's um, quite an important bit of um, kind of cultural media studies theory um, by a guy called Manuel Alvarado, who talks about the kind of four themes of kind of racial representation of non-white representation in in media texts. And he talks about that. So he talks about um, the the four types are. Um, dangerous, pitied, humorous, or exotic, and you know the kind of character that we're talking about in satanic rites is you know two of those: exotic and also yes. dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Um, on account of her, you know, being chief satanist, um, or at least you know, kind of in that in that kind of um, grouping. So rather than having a kind of an an Asian actress, which you know I don't deny the kind of represent- having a representation is is you know it's not an innately bad thing. It's just where that person is placed in the you know the kind of wider scope and the fact that she is on the side of the baddies as opposed to the side of the goodies um i think bears commenting and some criticism uh, yes and, and also i think the only other non-white person in the film is also one of the vampires if i remember correctly there's a, a black female vampire um, yeah um and uh yeah obviously yeah that's not great um um, and and we do need to kind of be aware of that stuff and and be critical when looking back. And it does it does come up now and again in in these particular movies, and certainly in uh, in wider um, cinema and TV of the time. We're running out of time, pretty much, Kirsty. Um, we always do. Yes, we always do. <laughs> and 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 I could talk for ages. It's been really fascinating. Yes. The other thing I'll, I'll just kind of say about going back to Curse very briefly. Um, because I think this point applies mm. to the appeal at the time of all these movies. In America, horror films had become marketed to children by this point, and they'd become kind of styled towards younger mm. audiences, which is why you got I, I Was a Teenage Werewolf and things like that. Yeah. And, and therefore, the Hammer films, when they were exported, they were also... Uh, pitch to that young audience which became a problem in kind of the 70s when they started to be full of um, breasts and things and they had to be cut to bits to the point of being incomprehensible but certainly the early ones were kind of quite suitable for that audience and suddenly I've heard American uh, Hammer fans who were around at the time say that they found something really thrilling in the fact that the movies were being sold to them as kids, but the characters in them were grown-ups. And conflicts between grown-ups, or as, as the 
um, as one fan said, adults <laughs> trashing other adults. Right. So it kind of had... They had a youth culture appeal and relevance at the time because they were irrelevant <laughs> to the youth culture, which I think <laughs> is is kind of interesting. And that is funny. Understanding that is is understanding how the films kind of fit into the kind of burgeoning youth culture. Because fifties is, is is remembered as uh, as the time when you know it was post war. Kids um, had a little bit more money um, and were looking for things to do and, and you had the explosion of drive-ins in America and things like that. And a final note I wanted to say about, you know, you were talking about the, the colour and the bright lighting. I think in a way a useful way to think about these horror movies is that they are like kind of dark fantasy. And, and when I say dark, I mean more in the kind of subject matter than in the visuals. Because these movies, the thing which they stumbled upon that was unique was the colour and was the the fact that you could see stuff, you know. So they don't have that same appeal to the imagination that, say, the Val Luton Hollywood productions of the 40s do. It's a completely different style, really, um, and a completely different type of horror. And certainly, um, unless you were very, very young... I would not recommend yeah. you go to these movies if you want to be scared. But I, I, I think the the appeal of them at the time was a, a combination of shock and adventurousness. Um, and I think the shock has faded. But I, I possibly because I remember it from my youth, I, I still enjoy the adventurousness of them. And there's an adventurousness to the fact that all these movies that Howard and I will be watching. In a way, you, you, you don't know where you're going to go next, which genre you're going to go into. Um, I should make it clear right now, actually, that the frequent horror-adjacent nature of this podcast in general is going to manifest itself very strongly here because Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing did make a lot of films together, but they were not all horror films. Oh, okay. Um, you know, they're in some historical epics... Uh, Scream and Scream Again and um, The Night of the Big Heat are as much science fiction thrillers as horror films. Um, then there's family-friendly adventures like She and Arabian Adventure. There's even a couple of comedies because later in their career, Cushing and Lee played cameos in comedy films like the um, Sammy Davis Jr. movie One More Time. And each and every film we're going to be covering, plus TV series that they were both in different episodes of, like The Avengers and Space 1999. Right. So it is a very varied body of work, but I think that it is important and instructive to consider that every single film that they made together, because of the light it throws upon them as actors, on their professional relationship and their friendship, which is very important, and on their contribution to the horror genre as well. So that's where we're going next. But thank you very much, Kirsty, for, you know... Oh, thank you. ...for giving me this chance to kind of sample your viewpoint on these kind of movies and to just... Well, thank you for, for the detail. Oh, well, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. The context. We're coming to the end of the episode, so what we always like yeah. to do is uh, just recommend some things that are, that are available uh, easily to our listening audience in the horror realm. Um, do you mind if I ask you to go first this week, Kirsty? No, not at all. Not at all. So um, I, yeah, I've got a couple, well, three recommendations and one actually I've not seen yet. <laughs> it's just, this is the thing I'm going to watch this week. Um, so the I've actually got two television recommendations and then a film um, uh 
Yeah, okay. talk about it. Um, so again, not strictly horror, but horror adjacent. Um, on the BBC iPlayer at the moment is they've still got um, ghosts. The, the people behind it are the guys who did, um, who were kind of the main Horrible Histories cast. Also did Yonderland on Sky One. Um, and the kind of ghost is their sort of slightly more grown up um uh, kind of foray into um, serialised comedy um, and what's lovely about it is that it does play with quite a lot of horror tropes but from a comedic effect um, and yeah so it's lovely and it's still it's available for 11 months on the iPlayer apparently um, so yeah if you like haunted houses um, and you also like to have, have a laugh in a kind of very British kind of blackaddery type way um, it is a you know great visual um, and verbal comedy um i would strongly recommend that um my second recommendation is actually available on sky um on demand and again not strictly horror but horror adjacent um is uh fx's adaptation of legion um which is part of the um kind of marvel um x-men universe oh yeah um focusing yes focusing on um a character called david who um spoilers has a distinctive lineage um and right. uh is sort of he exists um initially in uh, a psychiatric hospital he has schizophrenia um and it is a bizarre creative imaginative wild three seasons um and some of which are really clearly horror there's a, a character um called the shadow king and some of the kind of visualizations of him in the first series in particular just just horrible um and the uh, I think there's a sort of sense with that particular show that it was, you know, they were kind of confused that they were still allowed to be on the air and be so kind of wild and out there in a way that's not dissimilar to Hannibal. Um, so the last series has these kind of um, just magnificent and creative sort of flights of fan uh, fantasy and fancy creatively um, in a way that's particularly scary, I think, and affecting. Um, so I would suggest that um, and kind of link from that um, to part of the kind of the idea of, of that is that often the kind of show goes off in different directions because obviously different worlds exist within the kind of lead character's head so um, myself and my husband Sven we've decided that now it'll be hilarious to look at anything starring Dan Stevens who plays the lead role of David in Legion and see you know anything that he's in from Downton Abbey to um, Night at the Museum 3 as uh, a kind of another version another you know kind of um, version of uh, David's you know kind of psychoses in that narrative oh that's interesting and so with that in mind we're going to watch this uh, this week um uh, a folk horror film which is on netflix called the apostle where dan stevens um uh, stars alongside michael sheen um in a sort of edwardian era kind of remote community kind of cultish thing i've heard good things about that it's um... yeah so i'm gonna watch that <laughs> Am I wrong, or is it Gareth Evans, the director who did the raid? Oh, it might well be. I think it is. It might well yeah. be. Yeah. Um, I have. I didn't look into the director, but I just noted noted it was on uh, on Netflix. So I'm going to definitely kind of um, check that out and and try and fit it in where we can with the uh, uh, kind of David Legion multiverse. Oh, great. Well, on that note, um, I think there's another kind of horror adjacent Dan Stevens film, which I don't know if you've seen, called The Guest. Yes, that's on Amazon, isn't it? I think that's on it? Amazon, yeah. So... Yeah, um, that's one that I've been meaning to check out. 
yeah, we'll, that, that's yeah. We'll also do that. Try and fit that. And he's actually called David in that one as well. So. All right. Okay. Wow. Great. <laughs> so that helps. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, I definitely have seen Ghosts, and I agree heartily. It's just wonderful. And there are there are a couple of scenes in it which are really wince-inducingly horrible, but hilarious. No spoilers. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. No spoilers, but yeah, I think we both know what we're talking about. There's a thing with a bus, right, Dan? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, oh my um, word. What an wow. absolutely <laughs> wonderful scene. Um, yeah, yes. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So my two for this week, I've just had a quick scan over what's coming up on the Horror Channel this week. Always um, a fruitful source of horror picks. And on Tuesday, I think, that's uh, Tuesday the 26th of May, um... At night, obviously after the watershed, because that's when the Horror Channel can show its horror. Uh, we've got uh, an interesting triple bill, um, two of which I've seen. The first one is The Woman in Black from 2012. Oh, that's good. Uh, I, which is a Hammer film. Uh, yes. I, I quite like that one. I, I don't like it as much as the earlier version that Nigel Neal wrote for TV in the 80s. And I mm. am known to go off on one about that. But it, the, the, the 2012 <laughs> one did frighten me. So I would recommend it. Uh, it's immediately followed by Hellraiser 3 Hell on Earth, which is the last Hellraiser film I saw. But n- not because okay. I thought it was terrible, um, but because I heard that the later ones were, were pretty bad. Um, I actually think Hellraiser 3 is an interesting example of kind of early 90s cross-Atlantic um, kind of co-production horror. Um, yeah. It has British uh, elements and, and American um, and, and I thought it was fun. And that's followed by the Elijah Wood remake of Maniac, which I haven't seen. Um, and I haven't seen the original either. But it, but if, if you fancy a horror triple bill, then that's then those three are on Tuesday night. Correct me if I'm wrong. Are they making a television show of Hellraiser? I believe I read that somewhere. I sort of think maybe the Hellraiser thing has been in development hell for a while. The, 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 again, it's one of those things where the rights situation is kind of complicated. Clive Barker owns some of it. Studios own some of it. And, and different people are trying to develop different things. Um, but yeah, something will, will come of it. It, it it's it's got a fan base and it's a mo- the original film is is one that I find very interesting. I I don't feel that I'm necessarily attracted to the idea of it of a franchise as a franchise um in the sense okay. that I don't think the most interesting stuff in the original film are the things that they carried over to the sequels. Do you know, do you know what I think is the most interesting thing about the first film Dan? Go on. Well, it's the only horror film that I know of that has a character called Kirsty. Oh, no way. Um, which is obviously means it's very special to oh, me. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> Kirsty. Yeah. Tiffany, Kirsty, Tiffany, as they shout in Hellraiser 2 about a million times. Um, good heavens. Yes. Played by the wonderful Ashley Lawrence. Um, <laughs> you, I feel like you've set me a task now to find other horror films starring a Kirsty, but I think you would have noticed if there were. Well, yeah, or maybe, and listeners could find them. <laughs> yeah, I think I would, but but I'm, you know, I might not be aware of some of them. So, um, yeah, if anybody knows any more horror films with a character called Kirsty, and please let us know. Well, there you go, and you know, and and Kirsty is in Hellraiser three as well, although only for one scene. Is she and on a screen? Oh, okay. but like it's a bit that they specially filmed. 
Um, it, you know, it is okay, like so she's like, that counts, and and it uh, and she gets yeah. the credit, and Ashley Lawrence as Kirsty at the start, mm-hmm. just for for doing that, that short scene. So I think she's in one of the later ones as well. So Kirsty was not entirely forgotten, which is good. Um, but oh, so there we go. That, that those are our recommendations. Um, right, I think it's time we wraps up. Uh, it is. Um, Kirsty, thank you so much. I know that you're not going to be back next week. No. Um, you're having a week off. I am. And, well, you sound um, <laughs> <laughs> extremely excited by that prospect. No, it's just a general week off rather than a specific week off. So it's not it's not you specific, Dad. It's just a general week of, of not doing much, which is rather delightful prospect to have to say. I understood that, Kirsty, but thank you for making it clear for the listeners. <laughs> Um, so, so I will see you in a couple of weeks. We'll speak in a couple of weeks. Yes, and that'll be wonderful. I shall look forward to that. Thank yeah. you for a lovely chat today. Okay, have a great Thank couple you. of weeks. Yay, you too. Bye, Kirsty, and bye everybody else. Bye. See you soon. Bye, bye, bye. You have been listening to, and now the podcast starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by Kirsty Warro and T D Velasquez. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at AndNowPod or at LeeCushingPod. Follow us on Twitter at AndNowPodcast or at LeeCushingPodcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash AndNowPodcast. And now... The podcast stops.